that's why I, I want to do it. It is about food, but it's more so about community. And I think that we're missing that as a society now. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hi, Emma. Let's talk about our upcoming retreat. I'd love to. Our second annual virtual online slow living retreat is coming up it's a little later this year it will be in december the very first weekend of december and we have just a really wonderful panel of workshop leaders and activities planned and the theme will be about embracing winter so we'll be kind of coming off thanksgiving moving into those holiday times and you know it's another weird year and we just will relish the opportunity of coming all together and learning from each other. We have three amazing workshops, one with Eva of Eva Cosmos Flores on Instagram. These are all past Good Dirt guests, by the way. So Good Dirt listeners, you will know these people well. Eva is teaching a class on intentional design for slow living. So excited about that one. Kirsten Shockey, our fermentation queen, is teaching us a class on how to make fermented gifts to share for the holidays. So that's very timely. And Christy Johnson is teaching us an embroidery class, how to embroider our own stitch wishes, embroidered talismans, sort of mindfully making and mending and artfully doing those things. We also have a yoga class. You and I will be hosting a coffee chat and we will be hosting a community happy hour for you to meet other lady farmers and good dirt listeners and with a special musical guest eliza blue who is also a good dirt podcast guest will be coming on and sharing some stories and songs with us so you really do not want to miss it you can register on our website get your tickets now it seems like it's far away but it's not and tickets are limited so you want to be there yeah really excited i do always love our retreats this will be our fourth lady farmer retreat We had two in person and then with COVID last year, it was virtual and again, virtual this year. Both are wonderful and we hope to see all of you there. That would be great. But on another topic, Emma, what did you think about social media going down this week? I loved it. I wish social media would go down forever. (laughs) I know. What were you doing? I was actually outside in the yard. I was tending to my dye pots on the fire pit. The weather's been so beautiful. I've been 
doing some of that outside. It's really fun. I was doing some bundle buying and I was thinking I should probably be taking pictures and posting the process because of course that's something that might be of interest to some of our followers but I couldn't get it to work. And I reached out to you in frustration, like, can you help me with this? And then you told me it was down. Yeah, I was spending way too much time on social media because I've been sick the past few days, unable to do much except stare on my phone. Well, you know what? That's a story I'm telling myself. Probably could have done more, but (laughs) I mean, I was sick, so. And I was just so glad that I had that built-in buffer because, you know, it's easy to spend too much time on social media. Anyways, we were both so happy. And it's been interesting to talk to others about it, too, because I think that was generally a shared experience among most people. Yeah, and that's the reason I'm even talking about it. It's interesting. Like, for some reason, I had this feeling of this sort of sense of freedom because I actually couldn't post what I was doing. and I could actually just enjoy doing it. (laughs) And then I realized how ridiculous that was. And it struck me as meaningful really quite meaningful. And it occurred to me that I should explore this some more. It somehow it feels really important. You know what I mean? Definitely. Kind of how we're all just players in this system that none of us are really happy with. I don't know. I mean, obviously, we've had this conversation on this podcast a lot. We we do talk about social media a lot. There's a great episode with Marley Grace where we talk about it specifically, but it's just we're participating in this system. And another thing we talk about a lot at Lady Farmer is systems that we're a part of, that the industry between us and our daily needs. And it's almost like social media is the next version of that. You know, we have industrial food, we have the industrial clothing, we have industrial building that built our houses and now with social media it really is this industry of connection I guess and attention and it's just so important to be aware of that and yes we definitely it's all personal responsibility we play you know we decide how much we want to participate in all of that but I will also argue that the way that our world is and the systems that there are sometimes there's just not a way around it. You know, I mean, if we want to reach people, we do that on social media. What would Lady Farmer be without social media? I don't know. It's so crazy to think about. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's interesting how the whole thing ties in with the conversation that we had with our guest, Kayla Lobemeyer of Under a Tin Roof. And she is on to talk to us about living a wholesome, simple, historical life through the seasons. But yeah. we really got into the conversation about social media as well. It's yeah, very we interesting. It just turns up this week. Yeah, it's funny. As someone who talks and lives and exemplifies historical living, you will let her talk about yeah. it. But she's yeah. like, but my life is all online. It's funny. So Under a Tin Roof was founded by Kayla and her mother, Jill. And it has been many things, including a flower farm, homesteading blog, a shop that sells handmade goods, and as you'll hear about in this episode, soon to be a food truck. Kayla is such an inspiration when it comes to slow living. She offers historically based country recipes, instructions on growing and preserving your own food, herbal remedies, and home goods. And I just love looking at her website and all the dreamy pictures of Kayla wandering through her gardens in historical clothing. And she's playing with her children or she's in her kitchen working on any of her amazing culinary creations. She's a wonderful cook. Yeah, she's such a joy to talk to. We covered so much in this conversation from homesteading history to the demands of running a small digital business based on your personal lifestyle. And this really resonated with us and we appreciated Kayla's willingness and candor in talking about this intersection of lifestyle, home business, and the role that social media plays in bringing all that together. Which is why this week's social media outage and its revelations seem like the perfect parallel 
to our discussion today. And it's also a good opportunity to remind our listeners about the Almanac, which is our own private Lady Farmer online community that we think offers so many of the benefits of social media without the setbacks. Totally. I love it. And I'm so obsessed with the Almanac and the fact that we have it. And it's almost like we knew, Mom. Yeah. We're ahead of the curve. Yeah, we just created the space. We wanted to have a, a community space for lady farmers and good dirt listeners that was not reliant on social media. So actually, for anyone who's interested, full transparency, the Almanac is hosted on a platform called Mighty Networks, which is a great company, women-run, women-led. I love it. And their whole mission is data privacy and connecting communities. And there's a lot of great communities you can be a part of on Mighty Networks. But the Almanac is one of them. And we love it. And so on Monday, when all most of my other apps weren't working, Mighty Networks app was. And I could get into the Almanac and I could peruse you know, pictures people were posting and think about some of the prompts we've been posting in there lately. So it's kind of cool because it like scratches that itch of like getting on your phone and connecting. But the content that you're absorbing is super intentional. It's not advertising. And you you know you're connecting with like-minded people. You don't need to like sift through and filter it anymore. And there's no crazy algorithm <laughs> to it. It's what's posted <laughs> no. there is what you see. So And the content is really curated towards specific interests. Yeah. So we love the Almanac. It is open all the time. The first year that we ran it, we're just kind of getting up on that year mark now. We were opening it seasonally. And now it's open all the time. So join us anytime. It is affordable and amazing and we want you there. Also, it's a great way to support this podcast because many podcasts you might listen to have like a Patreon channel or rely on sponsorships. We're super picky about our sponsorships. You've heard a few sponsorships on here before, but we're not going to sell anything to you guys that we don't absolutely love and use ourselves. So the Almanac is a great way to support this podcast. Even if you don't think you'll use it as much, you can consider it that supporting the Good Dirt podcast if that's what you're into. Thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for those of you that are already members and supporting us. And thank you in advance to those that will join us. And we really appreciate it. And so now we'll let Kayla tell her story of Under a Tin Roof and about her life as a model of slow living. And as she has certainly demonstrated to us in this conversation and in her work, a domestic historian. Yes. And now here's our domestic historian, Kayla Lopenmeyer. So I'm Kayla Lobermeyer. I got started with my business under Tin Roof, which is a whole lot of different things. First, it started off as a handmade business with my mom. She started her business back in, I believe it was 97, because I would have been two at the time. And she was a graphic designer and illustrator and would paint furniture. So she'd like go pick up a piece of furniture on the side of the road bring it home, sand it all down, repaint it. And she did all of these really beautiful. So in Shabby Chic was kind of brand new. So drawers would have like stripes on them and another drawer would have roses and just really beautiful stuff. And that was fun. And I would go to shows with her. And throughout the years, her business just changed a lot. And she made all sorts of different things. And by the time 
I joined on, she had a direct-to-garment printer and was making apparel. And same thing, still artistic, using a lot of her designs and things like that, and was selling on Etsy. And she was like, I think I really probably need a website. Can you help me with that? And I had my first son. I was a single mom. I was 20 years old. I was working in restaurants. And I knew how to do some web stuff. So I was like, yeah, that sounds good. And my original plan was to go to school for as an English major, and I just did not end up going. And I was kind of debating, should I go back? Should I not? And she was like, well, you could just write a blog on the website, and we'll see how it goes. And you can make money making stuff with me. So it's like, okay, I'll just try it. And it ended up working out really well. And we went to Country Living Fair for a few years. That was really fun. Met a lot of people there. And that's kind of how our Instagram following kind of got started was we met a lot of people there and befriended them and we were in the Beekman's Josh and Brent we went and did their show and that was really that was amazing that was so fun are they the property brothers wait who are they it's Beekman 1802 they do like skin products now goat's milk oh cool yeah they had a tv show way back when that's how we even knew who they were a reality show and what was the show called? It was called The Beekman Boys. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, check them out because they're hilarious. They're funny. So we did that and the blog just kind of grew. Mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to try gardening in the backyard. So my dad and I put together this 1300 square foot garden. He built a greenhouse out of reclaimed glass windows. I guess that also really propelled our social media for people just really like seeing that. Yeah. And wrote a lot about gardening and we got chickens in the backyard and yeah I guess that's kind of just how everything got started and I guess side note is I grew up in the Chicago suburbs so no farming experience nothing very urban setting I guess suburban setting I should say there's a big highway and it has every store you can think of on it and everything's (laughs) accessible and when we moved here to Iowa we live currently in a town that only has like a thousand people in it so it's really small really rural it's a big change for us and yeah so then we ended up finding a farm my parents did that was three and a half acres they bought that in December of 2017 I was still living with them at the time and my friend who they grow gap certified pork and then pastured chicken and turkey the garden I had grown in town was so big and produced so much stuff I was giving it away to everybody I had no use for all of this produce that was coming out of it and she's like you should start like a little CSA program and I'll put my meat in it. And I was like, okay, that sounds fun. And when we moved to the farm, we had a full acre that we could use to plant whatever we wanted in. So I just filled it with vegetables and my mom grew some flowers and we started a CSA program. And our first year we had 60 people that we were feeding. Oh oh my gosh. (laughs) First year, no joke. Yeah, it was so overwhelming and we didn't have our store yet. They converted the garage into a little farm store. So we were in the driveway with a tent, making it happen. We messed up so much and I learned (laughs) so much about growing vegetables. And we did that for a few years. And then when I got married in 2019, that was the last year we did vegetable CSA. And my mom, the following spring was like, I think I just want to start doing flowers because people would come to the farmer's market and just passed by, we aren't certified organic, but we grew everything organically. The practices in mind, we just didn't, we were too small to get get the certification. It wasn't worth it to us, but people would walk into our booth and pass up 
you know, $2 carton of heirloom tomatoes, but then they'd spend $16 on flowers and the flowers were so much easier to grow physically. And yeah, just what we could get to produce out of it. And the crop was successful. So I was like, well, let's just move over to flowers because we're losing a lot of money doing vegetables. Not really sure we're interested in doing CSA anymore because it's a very unreliable business. Yeah. Yeah. So moved into that. And then I kind of moved into doing what most people see online now, which is social media full time. So I write our blog, I write for a few magazines, I work with ball canning, and that's kind of my main income for our family. Yeah, that's where Under a Tin Roof is at right now. That is so many things under the tin roof. Where did you come up with the name Under a Tin Roof? Thanks. My mom and I, when we lived in town and had that first garden with the little greenhouse, there was a single car garage, just this little shacky building. And my dad, he builds everything for us. He's master builder, we call him really good at that and ended up converting it into she shed for her. Uh So it was air conditioned and heated and had hardwood floors. It was so cute. Kind of had it as a studio and then a little store of sorts when we were living there. And it had a tin roof on it. So when we joined up together, her business was just Jillian Halpton Company for the longest time. And she's like, well, we probably need a new name. So it's not just me. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing a coffee shop and I said, well, why don't we do under a tin roof since we're making everything in the building under a tin roof? So cute. Yeah, that's different. <laughs> and it's kind of lower on the alphabet when you get started. So so currently, is it still you and her or the business? Yeah, technically we own the business. She just mainly grows the flowers and sells them. And that's her end of it. And then my end of it is keeping up with our online presence. Another mother-daughter company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I almost want to interview you guys. I like, know. <laughs> I think that's so fun. <laughs> Anywhere in all of this, was there an aha moment for you? I mean, you're obviously drawn to these traditional skills and the things that we would call slow living practices or slow living lifestyle. So somewhere along the line in all of this, was there something that drew you into that? That was sort of the crux of your story where you changed to homesteady type things. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So I can remember sitting in the studio with my mom and she said, you should watch this documentary called Sustainable. Mm. It was on Netflix. It was lovely. And it followed this farmer through the seasons and he was growing vegetables in a sustainable way and raising pigs on their farm. Just things that we had seen around us from the other farmers that were in the area that we just didn't understand necessarily, but we wanted to know more about it. So I watched that and that just really sparked like, I don't know where my food comes from. I want to know more about that. And I feel I'm almost silly and unknowledgeable about a lot of what I'm putting in my body and on my body and mm-hmm. what I'm feeding my son. So yeah, I just, the next spring, cause that would have been either in the autumn or the winter before that, that idea sparked. Like, I don't want to just go for it and try it and see what we can do. And we found out the town we lived in 
you could have chickens in town. There weren't really any rules or city ordinances towards that. So we're like, okay, well, let's try it. And yeah, it just kind of kept rolling from there. Now that I live back in town again, I have a small garden. I ended up growing an entire acre of vegetables just a few years later. It seems you came from a desire to really know more about where your food came from. Yes, that was what initiated a lot of what we do now. Just understanding the entire cycle of the sustainable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, that opened doors to other things like living with less waste and composting. I mean, mostly it's always been about food for me, (laughs) if I'm going to be honest. I'm interested that in your Instagram profile, you describe it as historical living. Thanks. Yeah, I would say that that happened more recently. I've always been interested in history and mostly I would say anything within the 18th and 19th centuries. That's always been something that has piqued my interest and it's probably something that I'll never be able to fully explain why I like it. I started researching our family's ancestry several years ago and followed that and have done like all the DNA testing. And that really triggered a lot more of me researching into different time periods and how they lived. And I think if I could do anything, I mean, other than what I'm doing right now, I would probably become a domestic historian because I just find it fascinating what the average person did and mostly what the average woman would do in her day-to-day life. Have you ever watched a Victorian farm or the Edwardian farm on Amazon? Yes. (laughs) That sounds like a I love it. That's like my middle of the afternoon. I need my second cup of coffee for the day. I'm going to sit and watch this. It's a fascinating show. I watched a few, but it's not very cliffhanging. (laughs) I trailed off easily. But for (laughs) someone who's specifically interested in just day-to-day activities in the 1800s, then yeah. Yeah, that's the trouble with those shows. They have to make up problems (laughs) so that you'll come back. But if if it's just day to day, then yeah. Also, what I found interesting about specifically the Victorian one, and I might be remembering this wrong because it's been a while since I watched it, but the woman who was supposed to be the one kind of cooking and tending to the hearth, she actually didn't know anything about cooking in general. And she was just sort of, this is what they cooked. And I could tell because I love cooking. It just it was kind of a disconnect. How cool would it be if there was actually someone generally knew about the kitchen now? Because they're actually historians. They're PhD academia people and not farm people. And it just assigned them the roles. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So she got the cook role. Yeah. I would still love to know, I think her name is Ruth, how she got that title of domestic historian. Yes. Like what classes or courses did you have to take and everything to get that title? I just find that fascinating. I would love to know what she looked at. I think that's something you could probably just claim for yourself. I mean, you you just just did. And I was like, yeah, that's... (laughs) Call yourself a domestic historian because you are, and then you sort of just grow further into it. And so, you know, we can introduce you. Here's Kayla Lobermeyer, our domestic domestic historian. historian. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Do you have a book called The Year 1000? Oh, yeah, it's so cool. Have you seen that book? I bought it in a museum store in France actually a few years ago. I was seeing the Bayeux Tapestry. I think it was in that museum because the Bayeux Tapestry is around. It's like 1100 or something. But it's called The Year 1000 and it goes through every aspect of life. Literally what 
it was like to be a human in 1000. And it's fascinating. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to read that. We were having a discussion on podcast just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking to Heidi Barr of Kitchen Garden Textiles about plastic in the kitchen. And we got into this thing about it hasn't been very long, just a couple of generations since women didn't have plastic yeah. in the kitchen and all the storage and everything. Yeah. So I'm sure that you try to exercise as much plastic free as you can manage. So if you are replicating <laughs> historical practices in the kitchen. Talk to us about that. <laughs> I try to. I definitely use a lot of modern conveniences like machines and things like that. Sure. <laughs> I use a KitchenAid mixer. I don't mix all of my loaves of bread by hand. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Mostly because I have a nine-month-old and a six-year-old and I it does save me time. So I will lean into those. As far as plastic goes, we don't use a lot of it. Mostly I've gotten rid of plastic wrap for a long time and I've had to bring it back in mostly because of COVID and me selling baked goods in our store. Yeah, I have to have them individually packaged and that's a bummer. And I can't really sell a packaged beeswax wrap <laughs> muffin to somebody. So that would be a really expensive muffin. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or I'll unwrap it gently for you and hand it off. So I do have plastic wrap in my house. But yeah, beeswax wrap, I do use that like for our things. A towel works really well too for like covering a bowl or something. You don't use that. And then I guess a lot of our Tupperware, I have ceramic Tupperware that people mm-hmm. bought us for our wedding. It's just like little things that I've collected or I'll use a bowl cover or something. Mm -hmm. But our plastic Tupperware is minimal and the ones that we do have, I try to use them as much as possible, get the full life out of it. And I mostly use it for the freezer storage. I just haven't found anything better than plastic. And I would love to use, I've seen people use reusable freezer bags, Mm -hmm. but based on how much food that I produce and just from our garden and the farm, and things that I preserve, it's just difficult. So I'm definitely not a voice to teach you how to do that because I still don't know myself just because of the expense mostly in buying as many reusable containers that I would need. I mean, I've been collecting them over time. So yeah, in terms of other methods of cooking, I do try to do more historical things and choose historical inspired recipes and then make them more modernized so that they're easier. If you pick up like a Fanny Farmer cookbook, the original published one. They don't really give you measurements for what to use. Oh. They're just like a pinch of this and a little bit of that and make it work. It'll come together. Don't worry. So I try to use those and manipulate it and try to figure out how to make it easier for people now to understand how to use. That's so interesting that the original Fanny Farmer doesn't give precise measurements. Is there anything else that stands out as kind of a big difference? I remember when we were in Williamsburg several years ago, one of the guides had said that the desserts from the 18th century, I guess they were maybe probably recipes from England because it was colonial Williamsburg, just had tons and tons of butter and sugar. Have you found that? Oh, Yeah, I'm sure they did. I love Colonial Williamsburg. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So fun. Yeah. Well, things then would not have had the leavening agents that we have now. Baking powder and baking soda weren't as popular to Mm -hmm. use. I don't think that was would have been until like the mid 19th century that that would have really been commercially produced to leaven your cakes and oh, muffins or quick breads, banana bread, that kind of thing. So 
a lot of desserts would have been really heavy and I'm sure butter and sugar would have helped improve the flavor and taste of that. Mm, yeah. Interesting. I guess sugar was a real commodity back then. And in Colonial Williamsburg, that probably represented the upper class segment of society. Right. And they could probably, you know, afford a lot of sugar and maybe it spoke to their wealth or something if they had, you know, a lot of elaborate sweets. For sure. I just remember that. I remember that stands out in my head from one of those tours and they were, you know, they had all this food set out examples and there was these gorgeous desserts. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And it would have been a direct import, I'm sure, right. from like the Caribbean exactly. and everything like that. So I do remember going there and having, they had like sipping chocolate that you could have. Yeah. And it's so bitter because there's no sugar in it. It's just that dark cocoa powder and it's very different. But yeah, I don't think a lot of what they ate was sweetened. I think too, one of the more fascinating things is that you assume, you know, hundreds of years ago, they ate these organic, amazing vegetable dishes and came, went outside and got in the dirt and there weren't pesticides or any of the modern things that we have now that we're trying to avoid. And I love learning that people then really didn't eat vegetables because hmm. they didn't want to put the labor into growing a garden. It was too much work, same as it is now. Hmm. So they mostly ate starches. They would eat like bread and then they'd eat meat and cheese and things that were easy. And it's the same now. So nothing's really changed. Now we just have <laughs> things so on our food that we like, don't want. You're defining my ideal diet. Bread, meat, <laughs> cheese. Yeah, yeah. That's literally what I eat when I'm lazy. <laughs> That's interesting. Are you talking about 18th, 19th century, that kind of time period, the sort of homestead era of America? Yes. 40 acres and a mule people, like they weren't out there growing vegetable gardens. They just had their meat and potatoes and stuff. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yes. So like the people in Colonial Williamsburg, they have the beautiful gardens yeah. there. But the average person that right. lived in a small town like that, they had a garden for show, but they weren't really going out there and eating from it. It's too much work. I also imagine there being a class difference between whether or not you have the help to be the garden yeah. person and the cook person. And if you're literally doing everything on your own, as I'm sure most of us can relate to this these days, it is a lot. Yeah, it is. I look back and wonder at all the work it took to process an animal. You know, the pig in the fall, the pig slaughter in the fall, that would include the whole neighborhood and the whole family. And it took a couple of days of, you know, a bunch of people on specific jobs. And so that was the meat. And I guess the meat was in those situations was kind of seen as the main thing, or you would process a cow or a, or a venison or something. So if you had that, that was the basic. And if you had your corn and potatoes or whatever, so it kind of makes sense. It does. We're about to do that this fall. We're going to butcher a few pigs ourselves. Oh, really? Yeah. My friend that does the gap certified hogs, we mm -hmm. told her like we usually we purchase a hog off of her and the butchers are so booked up this yeah, the past two years. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's insane, which is good. That means a lot of people want to get in on homegrown meat. I love mm -hmm. that. So anyway, we were like, well, could we just buy a few piglets off of you and raise them ourselves? And they're like, yeah, you can go for it. So they walked us through it and we have four pigs over at the farm and then... September, October, whenever they're ready, my dad, me, and then one of his friends, we're going to kind of have a friendly competition to see who can do like the best cuts, but we're going to butcher them ourselves. And oh my gosh, wow. I'm nervous. 
But yeah, we're just going to try it. And thankfully, his friend is a hunter and kind of understands the process. So it should go okay. I'm just not sure we're going to have butcher uh, quality cuts off of That's amazing. I'm very impressed because I've never actually slaughtered a chicken. I have like observed the chicken processing process. I know about the rabbit situation. That's actually a very clean one. I'm not sure I could do a pig. It'll be difficult. So I commend you. Yes, because they're so like smart. Yeah. They're like having a dog. Yeah. Really. And we've done chickens for a couple of years now. And that that is easier. It was really difficult the very first time that we did it. And aside from taking the life of an animal, which is difficult in its own right, I was so nervous about the evisceration process. Yeah. Like, I really hope that I don't contaminate this meat and something goes wrong. And yes, so the pig will be a feat of its own, but I think we'll be okay. Yeah. (laughs) These things are so unimaginable for us now. And it's so crazy that you're doing that. But literally, as a human race, we've been doing this for as long as we've been on the planet. Yeah, it's it's been so so recent that we haven't done it. Yeah, that we're so disconnected from it. Yeah. It just blows my mind. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't that long, maybe early in the 20th century, before they had, you know, before the benefit of refrigeration to process the meat and, and put it up and keep it all year. It would be a big fall thing right when the weather started turning cold is when you would slaughter the pig and have this neighborhood event oh that's why it's in the fall that makes sense yeah i grew up in northeast tennessee which is southern appalachia so to speak and heard about all these things i am not of the age that these things were common but they still existed to a certain extent sure at that time in the 60s and 70s some people are still doing it they're not doing it much anymore but it was like a party it was like an event it would be like an event like a community thing and the hog slaughter and people would have their jobs making it happen it was kind of like sort of assembly line sort of thing i love it that's what you guys are doing well just you talking about that that's really what everything i write about and everything that i share and do and just enjoy doing in real life, I mean, online persona aside, that's why I, I want to do it. For the community. It is about food, but it's more so about community. Yeah. And I think that we're missing that as a society now. Yeah. How incredible is that to get the entire neighborhood together to just help do something meaningful and all the conversation, all yeah. the things that you learn. And you get to go home with something that, I mean, it's kind of sad. Yeah. <laughs> but also, it's really good. Also, because... it's important for life. Like, everyone yes. needs food. Yeah, and there was another community activity that we would hear about where people would get together and process the beans. There was a certain kind of bean that would be dried, and they would get together and have a party and string it up, put a needle and thread on it, and have these long strings of beans. That, and you would hang them up in your house or your barn or whatever, and they would dry. And so, is that why they're called string beans? No, they're called string beans because a lot of the varieties of the beans had little strings that you'd have to actually remove to cook. But I think locally in the area where I grew up, they're called shucky beans. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that could have been a super local term. They would get together and have a party and do this food preservation activity and then you know I love it share the food we do something similar every September the farm has about 10 mature apple trees on it Mm. and we get together with our neighbors who really become our family my 
extended family has never been very close. It's always just kind of been me and my parents. So I feel like they kind of adopted us, which I love it. It's so nice. But anyway, we get together and press apple cider. Oh, love it. Every September. And it's a whole Mm -hmm. process. We all sit around. We all dice up the apples, remove the core, prep them, make sure none of them are rotten. And then somebody is going in and drains it out. And yeah, we all have our roles and it's really fun. And then we always have like a big potluck at the end. So that's really fun too. And do you ferment it? I want to this year. I fermented cider, but I haven't fermented apple cider vinegar. I'm looking forward to that this year. Okay. Oh, here's another one. And this is in my memory in my life. I was pretty young when we did this, but we went to at least one an event where they would churn the molasses and there would be a mule oh my gosh that was walking around this big barrel that was over a fire and churning the molasses and churning and, and the product was sorghum or sagum as they said in east tennessee how cool is that so did you have to partake no you just went that's awesome you would have sagum on your biscuits and oh that sounds good so there was a lot of that kind of culture where i grew up and a lot of it exists today but they do they will replicate it yeah it's funny too how even just now talking about it 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 seems so romantic and oh lovely community a lot of work there's a lot of sweating (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) and also one day probably soon or even not that long such a necessary part of life like it's i think about that a lot the kinds of things that we think of now even just berry picking you know on a summer afternoon it feels like a privilege to be able to go pick berries but it's not that long ago and also maybe not that far in the future it's what you have to do yeah you have to get the berries to eat yeah if you want them you have to go get them. Yeah. Back to the hog killing thing. That was the basis of your survival for the year was to process that hog and to have the meat in reserve for many, many months to come. I want to circle back to something you said about your friend raising the GAPS certified pig. Is that that GAPS diet you hear about? And what does that mean? It's the Global Animal Protection Certification. I believe it's what it's called. Okay. Does that mean they're well-treated? What does that mean? I think that's interesting. It means, so they are raised in, it's called like a hoop house. Mm -hmm. They're technically still on concrete, but they have hay bedding that's changed out daily. And it's half, like this half of the hoop house is protected. And then the other side is open air. And I mean, the whole thing's pretty much open air. There's airflow going in both ways. So it's like the step in between a confinement hog and a pastured hog. Mm-hmm. And then the gap certification is they can't make any physical changes to the pig. So they can't like remove tails or anything like that that you would normally have in a confinement. And the reason for that is they don't want too many animals packed in one space. So the animals have plenty of space between. There's not a whole bunch of pigs packed into this stall. Mm-hmm. So then they don't have that well, te- I guess, yeah, in confinement, they bite each other's tails off because they, oh. they're they so close together and they're bored and it's just Stressed. not a fun yes. So they have plenty of space and they have a pretty decent and nicely treated life up until their last day. And I believe that they're antibiotic and hormone free and all that kind of stuff. So. Interesting. Is that if you like don't have the pasture space, why would someone opt for that instead of a pastured animal? Yeah, I've talked to so many just local people about this and I think it's mostly a debate on like the amount of animals that you can produce within a timely fashion to make back the money that you need to actually make a living off of it. Mm -hmm. 
which stinks. It stinks that that's the system. Yeah. But yeah, it's mostly that because with the confinement building, you know, you can produce hundreds of pigs in one go and sell all of them. And there you go. You've made this huge cash prize and a decent income because they were a lot cheaper raise. Mm-hmm. This, you're taking another step and being like, well, they're more expensive to raise. I can't raise as many. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really making a great income. And then on pasture, you know, you could say like, well, you have this huge open pasture, but that costs money too. And yeah, it does seem the economics of it. That's interesting. I didn't even know that that in between existed. Well, the difference is these things come from our history of homesteading where people were producing food mainly for themselves or extended family. Anyway, we're trying to feed less people. So the scale was so much less. Now, you know, people are trying to make a living out of it and, you know, selling more. So the economics clicks in big time. So, and as we all are aware, you know, when you get into really large scale, you get into all kinds of problems with the CAFOs and the industrial meat and antibiotics and all of those things. So we want there to be a way for people, we're not anywhere near the number of people homesteading that we used to be and nor that's not possible or maybe even desirable. I mean, you know, that's the thing in the past where everybody's growing their own food, right? Yes. That's the issue. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And the issue is, is that it's not realistic. Right. Yeah. You could even go again, this is going back to like talking about the Victorian era growing vegetables, but they didn't really do that. Yeah. You just feel like they did or you think <laughs> they did. And I mean, what did people that lived in urban settings do? They didn't raise a pig in their backyard. Yeah. It was It's the same as it is now in ways. And I think there's a big discussion on if we got rid of confinements and conventional farming, if we just got rid of it, we couldn't feed the whole world then. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm the most knowledgeable person on that, but it does make me wonder like, but what did we do before? Yeah, that? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, obviously, we were doing okay. Not everybody. Right, not everybody. You know, you'd have bad weather or yeah. some animal would kill your pig. Right. You'd have the potato famine. It's a great example. Yeah, or your cow would yes. die. For those of us growing up watching the Waltons, <laughs> you should watch the Waltons. Have you done it? <laughs> I don't think I ever have. You no. love oh that my, show. You've heard of it. Have you heard of it? Yes. Okay. My mom's talked about it. Is that the like goodnight John, John Boy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> they, you know, they had a little homestead and it, you know, you saw like how important was that cow and if something yes. happened to the cow. And we're doing the same thing. There are so many issues that happen on a homestead yeah. that people just don't realize. And then when you post about them online, you get a lot of flack for that because people are just not used to seeing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People getting upset that we have cats outside or something. Oh, it's dear. like, but yeah, just silly things. But when I lived in the city, I kind of thought the same way. Mm-hmm. So I get it. It's confusing. And the nice thing is that we are very privileged that we can go to the mm-hmm. grocery store when something yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. And I guess if you fully circle back on that, you could say like, okay, well, that didn't exist. Could you just make do with right. it? What would really happen if you couldn't get out? But I do think that this past year with COVID really yeah. showed us that. Yeah. Like, okay, what can we manage 
with and without this year and just produce on our own so we don't have to go out at all. And that's why the slaughterhouses are all booked now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is so interesting and it is such a circular discussion because we don't necessarily want to go back to before refrigeration and all of that. Yes. But there's something to be said for all of the amazing conveniences of modern life and the problems that that causes. So maybe it comes down to like figuring out, like you just said, what can we make do? Is that settling? I don't know. <laughs> Yes. That's so interesting. It's a confusing discussion for sure. And yeah, you could say that there's no way that we could live without the grocery store mm-hmm. because we would all starve and die. Mm-hmm. It's like, but the grocery store is also killing us. Yeah. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is worse? Yeah, that's so true. And yeah. <laughs> and we had this really interesting conversation on another podcast. And we were talking about the whole idea of homesteading, this whole idea of self-sufficiency. And there's there's just really too many of us. There's just no way that everybody could be self-sufficient on their own land. There's not enough land. There's not enough yeah. resources. And what we really need is community self-sufficient communities. Yeah. Thus the emphasis on local, 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 because you have people doing things that you aren't necessarily set up to do, but they're close by and therefore then it's not part of the big industrialized system and all those things. It's an interesting conundrum. And, you know, we talk about the fiber shed. Same thing gets into with textiles and clothing. Yeah. I've noticed on your Instagram feed, you seem to have, sometimes you have historical clothing or or do you make those things? And Some of the things I do make, I'm learning to sew. My mom is more of the seamstress and then her mom is an excellent seamstress, very talented. So I'm teaching myself, right? right now how to sew clothing and then I work with a company called Little Women Atelier. I follow them. I love them. Yes. So they've been sending me pieces to share and that was kind of my goal for 2021 was to just transition over into sharing historical inspired things and change the way I was dressing, which is I feel like is how I started off with social media and our blog. I was really inspired by historical living. And I ended up talking like with a few, I had a a few opportunities for television shows come up, which all fell through, obviously, but they wanted it to be more of a commercial feel. I guess I can just say I was interviewed with like the Magnolia Network. Mm -hmm. That would have been in summer of 2019. So they just came out with all of their new shows, which I love them. They're beautiful, but they are more of that. It's a commercial style. Everybody's kind of dressed the same. Mm -hmm. Everybody's doing the same thing. And when they interviewed me, they were asking like, well, what are some situations that could happen with your business. I'm like, I don't really know, which is probably why I didn't get the show. Like in Victorian farm, you're like, we could, what drama could we make? I break a canning jar. Yes. (laughs) Like what are some issues that would pop up? Oh, see, they're trying to create tension. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, we don't really have that. We're pretty happy. So, (laughs) Oh, that won't do. (laughs) Yeah. And They were trying to see if, oh, if I would like go out and like build a garden for somebody else. I'm like, I don't 
really do that. I just <laughs> do this CSA and people come and get vegetables from me. And now with COVID happening, it was like, I just don't want to do that. Yeah. And if it means I'm not going to grow as quickly as I thought I was going to. So yeah, I feel like I just kind of came into my own. And now that mom is doing the flower farm and I just kind of have free reign to do what I want with the blog and our Instagram, I'm really just kind of having at it and having fun with it again. No, good for you. And you know that that will circle back and they'll say, okay, now we want to make a show, whatever you want to be. Like, don't fit into people's. Yeah. I'm so proud of you. That's so cool. (laughs) I really admire you for staying in touch with what you're trying to do because that would be so tempting. Yeah. To like fit their template just for exposure. Yeah. One might think, oh, I'll get the exposure and then I can just go on and do my thing. But I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a little more involved. And then you would end up (laughs) making probably at the end of the day come out and it would be not you. And that would feel so weird to be misrepresented. I would hate to see my family arguing fakely with each other on television. (laughs) That would not feel right. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah. Really interested in, in what your day looks like. What's the day in the life of Kayla of under a tin roof? And at the same time, what are the biggest challenges and the things you love to do the most? So lately, I've been getting up between like four and five in the morning. And I'll come down and I'll start baking for this new business which will eventually be a food truck. There's no food truck yet. Eventually we want to have like this fully functioning kitchen where I can cook whatever I want, you know, lunch, dinner, farm to table style meals. So right now I'm trying to get away with what I can legally without having a commercial kitchen, which would be the cottage food laws, Mm -hmm. which can sell most standard baked goods, things that can't be refrigerated, that sort of thing. So I'll get up in the morning. I will have probably two cups of coffee, maybe (laughs) three, and just try to wake myself up. My children will still be sleeping. And lately my husband is a chemistry professor, so he's had the last month off of school. So he'll kind of he's been helping me out and he'll take the kids when they wake up and hang out with them and I'll have baked bread or some sort of baked good that I'm gonna put into the store and once everybody's up and moving I've been up for a few hours already and I guess in that time I'll usually answer emails or write a little bit or plan out what I'm gonna post for the day and once everybody wakes up then we I'll make breakfast and I try to cook from scratch every day that's probably if I'm gonna be strict about anything being sustainable it's gonna be that so I try to cook absolutely everything that we eat from scratch and I love doing it and when we talked about starting this business that was kind of my motivation for like I'm not sick of it it's been seven years and I'm still cooking everything from scratch I mean I've learned new things now and easier ways but I don't like get tired of it at the end of the day and I don't get tired of hosting or feeding everybody like that's what makes me keep going throughout the day. And we'll have something simple. We'll have like fried eggs and toast or bacon if we have it, that sort of thing. And then if it's nice out, we'll take a walk to the park in the morning and my older son can get some energy out. (laughs) And I can hang out with the baby for a little bit. And we'll come home and I'll clean up. I'll probably post to Instagram. And I try really hard. I feel like I probably don't do Instagram the way that everybody else does, which is why growth has been slow for so long, because I try to really not be on there. 
Same. Yeah. Actually, Same we with feel us. very similarly. Yeah. yeah. And just make that decision. You're not going to feed the beast all the time. Yeah. I mean, I go on and I try to answer comments often, but I try to look at it as more like me answering a text message. I will do that, but I'm not going to sit and scroll. So I probably don't interact enough or very well with other accounts. So yeah, I'll post for the day and I'll answer back comments. But other than that, I'm not really on my phone. I'm working on stuff. So Mm -hmm. I'll be in the afternoons, like we'll have lunch and maybe watch a show. I'm not going to say my kids never watch television. (laughs) Mostly I'm like, go play, please. So (laughs) go find something to do. And we'll go out in the garden together or I'll work on a craft. And if I'm like sewing or I like to knit when it's cold out, which is not convenient because you want the things that you're knitting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, or any of those little projects. Like the other day I was braiding, I picked all the onions and braided onions on the dining table. So then my older son wants to come in and help. Cool. So we'll do stuff like that together. And, you know, it doesn't always go great. I will definitely get frustrated. And so our life is not like charmingly perfect or anything like that. And then by the time it's late afternoon, I'll start making dinner. The baby naps a couple of times in between there. Nursing, that happens. So it's just like this big jumble of stuff. Um, And then if I'm going to work out in the garden, I try to do it in the evening when it's cool. But this garden I have, I feel like I haven't really been outside this year, mostly because it's been so hot. Oh, yeah. Ridiculously hot. But then I planted a raised bed garden, which I've only done raised beds one other time. And I didn't make any work for myself. It feels really weird. I just like kind of go out there and I'm like, there's nothing to do. (laughs) 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 There's no weeds to pull. I mean, there's some, but it's not anything living when I was on the farm planting in ground and the weeds are just like constantly coming up and taking over. And that's all you're focused on. Yeah. So yeah, this year and everything's growing really slowly compared to years past. And I'm wondering if that has something to do with the heat. I'm sure. It's been a really strange growing Mm -hmm. season. So I feel like I go out there and I'm like, when are you going to be ready for me to do something? And then I sit and I feel guilty because I'm not posting anything about it, which is like one of my main gigs. Let's go. I want to show those preserves. (laughs) Yeah. You, You said you have a sizable garden. Are your parents still on the farm? Yes. They're on the farm. My mom has been doing the flower farm all on her own this year. Mm -hmm. So I was pregnant last summer and my youngest was born in October. So middle of the summer, I was large and in charge and not very helpful. (laughs) So she kind of just ended up figuring out how to do it on her own. And yeah, this year she was like, I just got it. And that's what they plan to do in their retirement. My dad is still working. And then my mom has just always had her own business and did the same thing I do. Stay at home mom for me, Mm -hmm. worked on her little side business as a, you know, extra income. And uh, yeah, she's really loving it. I'm so proud of her. I I mean, I answer a lot of gardening questions, but I really haven't been out there working. I've been out there, you know, to visit and drink coffee and stuff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that sounds similar to me. It's about a 40 minute drive to her farm and I live here in town. So it sounds similar. Yeah, this is kind of the time of year when the garden is at a point. Yeah, there's always weeds to pull, but it's almost like you start saying, well, what does it matter now? (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> you it's know. gotten this far. You're fine. Yeah. It's, and I notice it every year. I notice that there's this, you know, this arc of things that, you know, need to be done. And then it just starts tapering off like right about now. Like, I think we just crested the hill where at the end of the season, it's not really in sight, but you're starting to think about it a little bit. And in November, all this stuff's going to be frozen and brown. And <laughs> I don't need to worry too much about pulling all that out right now you're feeding the bees or something right oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah and you know fertilizing the soil because yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah so you love the baking and the cooking from scratch so that's what you feel like feeds you and keeps you going in this whole project huh absolutely and tell us about your new your business your yeah. burgeoning business want to hear about that yeah when we first got well when I first found out I was pregnant unexpectedly my parents at first I was like I'm just gonna go back to school probably like after the baby's born and figure out what I'm gonna do from there and I had only ever really worked in the food industry um, through high school and worked as like a waitress and then um, worked in the kitchen and did that. And um, I had always loved cooking at home. I wasn't really cooking great things at the time. I didn't know as much as I do now, but I was still cooking from scratch, just not the best ingredients. And my parents were like, well, why don't you try to do a food truck? That would be kind of cool. And they were kind of, I guess I shouldn't say new, but new to us at the time. This would have been in 2014, 2015. Mm -hmm. And we were living in Texas. My dad had gotten a job down there. So I finished my senior year of high school and we were in a, another very urban area. They had me kind of recreate the menu of the restaurant that I had been working in at home. And I served it to all of us. And we sat there and we were like, we can do it. It would work out. And I just kind of kept putting it off. I don't know. I don't know if I really want to like work in a food truck with a baby. That sounds really really difficult. And I just didn't have the passion behind it because I didn't know enough about it. So then, you know, years passed and I'm still cooking and doing all of these things with food. And I'm just ended up sharing recipes instead. And I guess it's been three or four years now that I just have been pestering at my family members. Like, what if we opened a restaurant? What if we turned the store into a restaurant? What if we, there was like a little bakery in town that ended up catching fire and got shut down. And it's like the only bakery in town that sold donuts. And everybody is like, we want donuts back in town. I'm like, what if we bought the bakery? <laughs> and it, you know, it's too far gone. So that didn't work out. And yeah, so it's just been within the past like six months that my husband is like, yeah, I think it's time. Let's move forward forward with this and this will be kind of a fun sneak peek but my parents came at me a couple of months ago and said so we have this full acre field and only like a quarter of it is planted right now so the rest just has turned into grass we want to build a few little cottages out there and turn them into Airbnbs so people can come and they found this thing where people are like coming and I guess you'd call it glamping yeah on the farm and they come yeah. and they would have like a little campfire and they could stay in the cottage mm -hmm. and yeah cook out there and they're like and then you know if you wanted to like do the food truck on the farm <laughs> then people could come and eat and stay I'm like okay that sounds good That's and my cool. husband was like yeah let's do it so now we're just kind of trying to find a food truck and the type of food truck I want with a full kitchen in it is pricey mm -hmm. obviously that sounds like <laughs> a fantastic idea and I want to ask you about let's say you've got the food truck up and going 
and you've got everything the way you want it. So what are your standards? I know you love to cook from scratch. Do you have like a standard for ingredients? Are they locally grown? Or are they not necessarily certified organic, but organically grown? What are you going to insist on for the most part when you have this? Yeah, that's the goal is to do locally grown. Um, if it's organic, mm-hmm. that's better. Yeah. It'll just kind of depend on what's available to mm-hmm. us. Yeah. So the goal is to do from scratch and do prairie 19th century little house on the prairie, I guess I would say oh. Anna Green Gables inspired food. So just old fashioned food that people, you know, you might eat now, but it's going to be stepped up a little bit. And we just actually had a farm supper last night. We invited a group of our friends and decided like, okay, we're just going to try to go through kind of the idea of how we want this to operate and tried it out. And it was so fun. Oh, it was wonderful. So we did a six course meal and it all got brought out in little servings so that you weren't getting like a ton of food the whole time. And yeah, my dad and I got to work in the kitchen again, like we used to and all brought it out, served to them. And at the end, they got to go out and cut flowers at the farm. So cute. That, yeah, it was so cute. And it was so wonderful. I got that. My mom calls it um, a show high after going to like one of her art shows. Yeah. And like, this was so fun and I can't wait to do it again. And I was like, I finally felt that way after a really long time because I love writing and I love social media, but it's just not the same. It can, I feel like it can really just like beat you down. Yeah. And this, it's really draining. Yes. This was like going outside and hearing how wonderful it was. And I can't wait to tell other people about it. Oh my gosh. That was just so nice. Yeah. So I think what we're going to try to do is do like a supper club to get away with not having a commercial kitchen right now and have people pay by donation to come and we'll just see if we can get some people out. But we've had, I had a few people message me like, I want to come do that. Like, really? Okay. (laughs) That sounds good to me. And when are your Karen camp situation? When's that going to be? They're hoping by spring of 2022. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, we can't wait fun. to come visit. That yeah. Awesome. Come to Iowa. Yeah, Canada. come visit. When you were talking about like the kind of food you wanted to serve, I just thought, ooh, shepherd's pie. I can just see, you know, yes. a stewy kind of something with a crust. And ooh, gosh, it sounds so good. It's making me hungry. <laughs> so what does the good dirt mean to you, metaphorically or literally or both? I would think about it as more literally that it would be like the everything coming full circle or the full mm-hmm. life cycle. And that's a big motivator for me for all the things we do. I like seeing things come out of nothing and go through all the steps to get there. I feel like a chicken is a really good example for that. Raising it, feeding it, doing all the steps to take care of the chicken, you know, going in and butchering it and then preserving it and then cooking it and then starting all over again. And I think if you're talking about soil or dirt in particular, it's the same thing. It's going in, feeding the soil with the compost, the plants from the year past, planting a new seed, watching it grow, watching it die, going in and composting it and coming back. That's just an incredible experience to go through. And I've done it for several years now and it never gets boring. This sort of just popped in my head and this is kind of non sequitur, but I think we've sort of both hinted at it all through this conversation, but there's something interesting about doing the work that both of us do which is sort of illuminating this lifestyle and sharing this simple life and sort of hearkening back to tradition, but also 
wrestling with what that means in the modern day and also relying on the internet and social media to like get our work out there but also that being something that's really kind of draining and goes against everything that we want to be doing and thinking about. So I'd be interested in in any of your thoughts about just that, the way that those two things exist in your work and in your world. The question that came to my head was, I wonder what she thinks about cottage court, like that, like hashtag, (laughs) because I feel like you would be like, Peg does that, but also it bothers me because it feels like it's a label attached to something that's like thing that I can't knock the cottage court label because I totally use the hashtag to get people to come and see things and it's helped grow a little bit. I get that. I think I also see a lot of people that are 100% cottagecore and I basically invented the word and the concept for it that I follow online and cottagecore does not mean like you're on a homestead and farming. And I'm like, okay, but does it mean you're just romanticizing Mm -hmm. that? It's confusing. And I agree with you. I think it's just a label. And it's a way to group together certain things about a simple lifestyle that you enjoy. I have seen other people say that Cottagecore too is we're about positively enjoying nature and promoting the natural world. And I'm like, okay, so I guess that means posing with a butterfly is... And it's the same things that I like to dress in. I think for me, I've been struggling a lot with social media for this past year, calendar year. I thought Mm -hmm. I was going to go in and be like, this is going to be the best year ever. Mm -hmm. I'm going to grow a ton. Last year was so great with gardening and canning because everybody was on board. And this year, I just feel like it's went down. Yeah. Especially more on the gardening side. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Everybody's getting back to their normal lives again, Mm -hmm. which is fine. And it's kind of back to like, okay, homesteading's like, eh, it's, a, it's cool, but I'm not really going to do it. And yeah. that's how I feel. <laughs> most of my followers are, and most of them are from urban cities and uh-huh. all over the world, nowhere close, nothing local. I've been so drained this year and I've had embarrassingly emotional moments where I'm like, why am I even doing this? Like, what is the point? And if I'm being honest, it all goes back to making an income. Yeah. Which I don't know. I think people can go online and look at an influencer and just nitpick their personal lives so much. And sometimes I look at other people's, this is the reason why I'm here. And it's this like really deep, meaningful thing. And I'm like, but you're also making money. Mm -hmm. And for me, it is a lot about making money. I do enjoy posting and I do enjoy all of the things that I do. I'm starting to get to the point where I'm like, I'm American dreaming this and I'm picking and picking at it until I'm trying to figure out what's left that I actually like about it Mm. because I'm trying to figure out how to make my income. And mainly, the income that I do make is based off of the influencing work that I do. So there's that whole issue. And that is very draining. And it's not necessarily super difficult work either. It's more or less me trying to keep up with the Joneses, I think is what it is. And me coming in and saying like, okay, here's my list of 100 things that I thought of that I want to post for the month of August. And I just can't get to all of it Mm -hmm. on my own. I can do it in real life, but then me documenting it and like turning it into a video. And it's exhausting and it's defeating. Yeah. I think it's changing. Maybe that's just me being optimistic, but I think it's like, I think people are catching on and over it. And I mean, we definitely are. We're trying to lean more on our almanac, our paid online community, because we got to a point where we're like, we would rather serve our community than pander to try to get people to pay it, you know, so 
for brands and stuff. So, and granted, I know everything looks amazing on Instagram, but it's all a lot of work, right? And it's all getting people to to join a community and everything. It's, It's that's a whole other thing. It's not like it's easy and we've cracked a code. It's actually harder. Yeah, but it feels good to not be reliant on this ever changing monster of a thing that you know. This is probably getting into the conversation you said about the small business. Like we can't compete with the like hefties of the world who can spend $150,000 on a sponsored campaign on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. You talk about cracking the code. I don't know it as well as people y'all's age do, but it seems it's like being at the carnival and trying to do one of those games where the duck is always moving. (laughs) You know, you're taking these pot shots and you might hit one every now and then again, but the overall investment that you put into all the chances to shoot really don't add up. So it's ever changing and it's insatiable. It's just mm-hmm. insatiable. And it's like super designed that way. Yeah. Well, like in my age, you know, if I want to make a pie or something, which I love to do or bake bread or something, I don't I don't want to like be having to photograph the whole thing. And plus I get terrible internet at the farm and it's a struggle and I get mad instead of just having fun baking bread. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's been my internal struggle for years. <laughs> Yeah, you just, I mean, it's fun to make bread, but hey, I've got my hands in the dough. I can't handle the camera too. So I'm just going to make bread. Yeah. And I just love you describing that that supper that you just had. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I always have to say this when I feel like hating on social media forever, like, it does connect you. Like, we wouldn't have found you. Right. Because, yeah, I'm sitting here complaining about it and I'm like, I don't know, in somebody else's eyes, I'm maybe doing really well. And, (laughs) you know, I still need it to get my business to operate. So, yeah, I think it boils down to this. We need to use social media in a way that helps us and not have social media using us in a way that helps it. Yeah. And you just have to find that thing. And yeah, I'm like for the podcast, for instance, like, oh, my gosh, there's endless podcast guests on Instagram and what would we do where would we find people it's so much fun and you can go and you can find a whole bunch about them before you even reach out to them you know so that's really cool and then you make these connections and so yeah there's a lot about that's really good it's just when it reaches the point where you're beating the head against the wall about how to jump through the next hoop that they've created which is by design as well. You know, everybody's going, oh no, now they do this and now they do that. It comes back to real community and real life and being able to create that around yourself because at the end of the day, I think that's all we have. And online community is great, but also I think focusing locally and focusing on the people around you and families and self-made family and all of that, that's what makes you feel good. Virtual community is great. And we've made some awesome connections virtually, you know, people we consider really good friends. So I'm not knocking that either. It's just, it's just a lot to sort through. It is. It's not black and white for sure. (laughs) No, it's not. And I'm really appreciative of where it's gotten us. And you do get that, you know, little hit of joy and satisfaction when somebody comes in and likes your things yeah and that's addicting and I'm not going to say that I don't enjoy that because why would I be there if I didn't yeah so yeah it's a double-edged sword and the thing that I've learned which I agree with you too about your community and I've tried that I've tried to do like interactive courses where I was available mm-hmm. all the time for people and that it's a lot of work. So I commend you for that. <laughs> That's Hello. incredible. Yeah, I think what I'm starting to realize, and maybe I'll figure out by the end of this year is that I just need to start 
posting because it's what I want to talk about and what I enjoy and not thinking so much about like what's going to get the most engagement. Yeah. And I think if we are posting with something that we authentically want to share and it gives us joy to share and there there are those moments, you know, like, oh, this moment, I want to show people this beautiful flower or whatever. Then I think on some level that comes across and it can only help us. Yeah. I think people for sure can tell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kayla. We feel sure that people can tell what you are doing is from a place of authenticity and a deep desire to share meaningful ways of slowing down, enjoying wonderful food made from scratch, beautiful things grown and made and worn, and past traditions that can still bring joy to our lives. We love what you're doing, and we so appreciate your willingness to share in such a great conversation with us today. Yes, thank you, Kayla. Thank you, Good Dirt listeners, for supporting us. Thank you, Almanac members, for being a part. We had an Almanac gathering last night, and it was just so heartwarming. I love everyone who comes to those gatherings. It's always so fun. So please be a part if you're not yet. We would welcome you. Check out our retreat online, ladyfarmer.com. It's under events. And we are just so excited about everything. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next week on The Good Dirt. Bye, everybody. Bye.